Punsters, welcome to episode five of the Planetary Union Network, the Orville Fan Podcast. I'm Dan Taylor, and with me are Joe Quiggle and Michael May. Gentlemen, how are you? Great. Fantastic. Um, Michael, you uh, missed out on a little uh, fun we had earlier this afternoon. Joe and I did a little extracurricular Planetary Union Network type stuff. Uh, how cool could it have been? Uh, well, we... We talked Very about, cool. About <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, we're just uh, uh, going to cut over real quick and uh, enjoy that interview that we had with Jonathan Franks, director of episode five of the Orville, uh, called Priya. Hey guys. John. Hey, hey Jonathan, how are you? Never better. How are you? We are Good. great. Thank you very much again for joining us on our little humble little Orville podcast. How do I do last night? Um, doing all right so far, as far as I heard. Everybody's uh, internet's been a buzz about it. I think uh, people are saying it's Orville's finally coming into its own. That's not our that, cutting plan. Not that any of us had any doubts. So, you started acting back in the late '70s, early '80s. A lot of guest roles on shows like The Waltons, Dukes of Hazard, Heart to Heart, Quincy, Highway to Heaven. I mean, basically everything I watched as a kid growing up. But no more. <laughs> but no. <laughs> um, but I noticed there, there's no Murder, She Wrote. How did you uh, escape that one? My wife was on Murder, She Wrote a couple of times. She played uh, Angela Steve. Okay. Um, I, think, I, think my two, I think my two Quincy's cover my Murder, She Wrote quota. Is, is that how it works out in the, uh, the, as yeah. far as a guest role currency? Yes, I think so. Um, the, but the, you know, I noticed there was an uncredited role as a basketball player in The White Shadow. How cool was The White Shadow? the best my I roommate mean, was on the show nathan book it was, oh, okay. it was one of the coolest shows on television and seven hooks is out of that show wonderful director our former president the late great uh ken howard right um yeah that was, that was something Thomas and then, Carter. i was with i was with um that actor's name now a showrunner anyway i loved that was a, that was a great gig that was over during the hill street era uh, yeah and then uh apparently you played someone named commander Riker on something called star trek the next generation right wild bill Riker. <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> um now besides um a role on star trek you directed a number of episodes of next generation uh deep space nine voyager uh, a couple movies, First Contact, Insurrec- Insurrection. And then you've gone on to do other, you know, direct other more episodic TV, Roswell, Leverage, Castle, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., etc., The Librarians. Now, did acting on so many different shows early in your career and so many different kinds of roles inspire your route into a directing journey or, as opposed to remaining only as an actor? It not only inspired me, I'm very thankful that... Uh... I learned another craft. No, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not trying to put my kids through college as an actor anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now, having spent decades on a Star Trek set, how did it feel 
when you first stepped onto the set of the Orville? It felt like I'd gone back in time. It, it had the magic of next gen, and that was Seth's intention, obviously. The design is very suggestive of he hired the cinematographer, Marvin Rush, who shot our show. It, it was uh, it was wonderfully um, what's the word I looking for? Nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Yet it was, you know, it was it was in the future. It, it, it uh, Brandon was there. Marvin's uh, operator, Joe Seth, was there. Seth is such a loyal fan of all things Trek. He was. It was a it was a wonderful environment to walk into. So, how was uh, directing the cast of the Orville versus uh, directing the cast of the Next Generation? Whenever you did it. Not not dissimilar, because what Seth has done has gathered a circle of actors who he knows and trusts and likes and loves and plays with. And by the end of our run, not by the end, by the third or fourth season of our show, we had the same environment. We were friends, and we knew each other's rhythms, and his show is is very similar in that regard. It's well cast. uh, Everyone has their own pocket that they play in. And it's it, it, it's not dissimilar at all. And I also got to ask, um, how, how many takes did it did uh, did you have to do to get the uh, cast completely straight faced when that leg fell out of the ceiling? We didn't do bad. We did one wide shot of the leg dropping, and then did the rest of it covered, so we would only have to do the leg drop. We placed it cleverly. On that was a great moment, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that was a great moment, and and it's so set that so we plotted where to where to put it just out of frame. We thought I thought it'd be better to have it land on the table so we wouldn't have to pan down to it on the floor. And then when she um, she paid it off by picking it up and flipping it over her shoulder to leave, it was the whole thing couldn't have worked better. No, I loved how it bumps into Seth as she's leaving. <laughs> yeah, and it it's um... that was a little uh, that was a. The director suggested that. <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty good. He, they, they should have him do some more. Now, speaking of the director, Dupria features, you know, Academy Award winning actress Charlize Theron. Now, did you have to arm wrestle someone to get this, direct this episode, or was it more like, let's give it to the Frakes guy since he's directed the likes of, of Academy Award winners F. Murray Abraham and James Cromwell in, in the sci-fi genre? When I got the script and read it, I called Seth and thanked him, and I said, what, if, what about Cheryl? I was only half kidding. And I said, what about Charlie Theron? Because he had done um, Million Ways to Die in the West. And he said, I've already asked her. Okay. So <laughs> I didn't know if he, Oh, yeah. So he was, he, was, uh, he was ahead of the curve. And it was uh, kind of a privilege, i got to say. There was one part of the Orville that, of this last episode, Priya, that just the, the dialogue and the we've talked about in previous episodes how the humor in this episode just kind of brings it to a, a more human level down to earth type of level it's just so you know every day and i loved the talk about when they were trying to decide what room to put her in um they were going to put her in one quarters but lieutenant phillips had a hamster and it still smelled like hamster yeah now the magic of the orville i find is a season or two down the road we could have an episode about Lieutenant Phillips' hamster, and it would work perfectly in what Seth has set up 
as far as the Orville goes. That's a very good observation. He's, he's a he's a clever man. <laughs> I think we all know that. <laughs> now the Orville has been classified as many different aspects of the same thing a star trek parody a spoof a ripoff an homage a tribute what do you call the orville i call it star trek with comedy we wish we were this funny when we were doing next gen <laughs> i don't think it's a spoof i don't think it's a caricature it's its own animal so i don't think it's necessarily an homage with the exception of the you know some of the style it is uh and the, 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 the comedy in the show is so, it comes flying by. And if you don't catch it, that's your fault. Because it's certainly not underlined, and it's certainly not framed up with any kind of a laugh track. Or you don't take a break. You know, we, we, they, us, all of us believe that, you know, it's there. If you like it, you laugh. If you don't, maybe you laugh at the next joke. I, I, I'm very impressed with it. It's a... It's a it's an amalgam of styles that people are, I think, beginning to embrace and understand that, oh, this is a new kind of film. I mean, it used to be called a dramedy, but it's mm-hmm. not really a dramedy. It's because it's so much, it, it clearly is tackling the same type of storylines that, um, that Gene tackled on, on, on the original Trek, but it also has the, uh, the spice of, of McFarlane's wit. And it's, I think it's a, it's a really, Nice combo plate. Uh, amalgam. That is the probably the best definition I've heard of the show. Um, I'm going to steal it and use it often wow. on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we we were saying homage a lot, yeah. but <laughs> now with your Trek background and having directed an episode of uh, the Orville, you you obviously feel, and from what you just said, that both franchises can coexist in the same space time continuum. Correct? There's no there's no need to love one or the other. They're it's 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 happy down the road for both, correct? For for the discovery and for the Orville, exactly. Oh, absolutely. I think there's room for both, and I think the there's an appetite for both, and I think a lot of people will watch both and compare, obviously, and contrast. But they they're two completely different styles, both influenced and sort of birthed from Roddenberry's. Vision. And I'm, I'm, I like the fact that they hit the ground running at the same time. And I also love the buzz around both shows. And you've got an episode that you directed of Discovery coming up, correct? I do. Uh, which one were I, you... I made, the mistake of, uh, I made the mistake of saying something about it at a convention and I, I got <laughs> Uh Now, have you, have you shot that one yet? Yeah. So okay, so... I delivered that one. Uh, did, which did you shoot first, the Orville or Discovery? I did Orville, then I did a season of the Librarians, and then I did Discovery. Okay. Do you feel that you, let's say, now that you've directed an episode of Orville, do you feel that you might return to the Orville as a guest star? As a guest star? Yes. As an actor? Exactly. I'd rather come back as a director. Okay. I'll do now- whatever. Now, if, when you come back as a director, um, and I can't see why you wouldn't, hoping that there's a second and third and fourth and season, and eventually maybe you get to direct uh, the Orville First Contact as well. <laughs> um, 
when you do go back to direct, perhaps there are a couple of uh, fan podcasters you could have as background crew members or aliens. I think we could make something happen. Yeah, there we, you go. We, we just had to have a little <laughs> bit of a shameless plug for us there. <laughs> thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. We do appreciate this very much. Uh, this episode will drop on Monday. You'll see it's plastered all over the uh, social web, uh, interwebs and media. So, um, again, thank you <laughs> very, very much for joining us. We do appreciate it. And we do hope to see you uh, directing another episode of the Orville um, once they get the green light that there'll be a season two or so. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. All right. So, Michael, that's what you get for uh, missing uh, uh, meetings and ignoring uh, interdepartmental memos. <laughs> yeah okay so to be fair to michael that was a sort of a last minute change of uh of schedule uh at jonathan frakes I, I talked to him earlier today to <laughs> confirm and it was basically oh shit i'm on a plane <laughs> you know i tried to get michael to do a little do a little ferris bueller day off and uh you know come join us but no so somebody's got reasons. some morals and higher standards okay. than the rest of us <laughs> so there are two reasons I have to move to LA now. <laughs> One is to get on the same time zone as you guys, and the other is to uh, get my cameo appearance, which sounds like a lock. <laughs> I, I think so. I think uh, let's uh, let's uh, hope uh, we come th- come through with that one. Um, well, as long as he's directing it, I think we're set. Yeah, he, he said we know the right people, and uh, as long as he doesn't change his phone number, I think we're okay. Yeah, <laughs> never know. Now, now that we have it, but, know, but again, uh, we want to thank uh, Jonathan Franks for joining us um, in his busy, busy schedule. It was great talking to him. Um, I, I, I like uh, sounded in the uh, interview there. I love the White Shadow. Uh, sounds like he does too. Um, and like Jonathan Frank says, there is room in this space time continuum for everybody to be fans of both the Orville and Star Trek. So uh, let's, uh, let's all live happily ever after. Let's move on to the episode um, that Jonathan directed. Priya, what do you got? what you guys think? Initial thoughts? Uh, it, it was pretty awesome. It was, um, I don't know. It, it's going to take a long time for them to, uh, to top episode three, but uh, um, I, I've, Really, I think I read in uh, what's it the AV Club, and then maybe some other people are saying it to you that that with episode this with this episode, like the Orville is finally coming into its own or something like that. Um, and I don't totally understand that because right, I, I think it was a super strong episode. I don't know if it was like demonstrably stronger than any of the others, which I've also loved. But uh, I guess I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on that. I thoroughly enjoyed it all the way from Mr. Potato Head through to a leg falling through a ceiling. And <laughs> it, it just hit the high notes everywhere for me. Um, I think the the reason critics who were harsh on it before are starting to come, come to terms with their um, admiration for the Orville is that this episode seemed very much like a typical Star Trek episode to me. Um, an episodic, you know, one-shot adventure. So, yeah, this episode, this last episode of the Orville, felt very much a regular. Uh, I don't want to use the word run-of-the-mill Star Trek episode, but it was very typical of your standard Star Trek episode. I felt. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree. I just I think that 
the others have also been that way. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's like I, I am not at all like putting down this episode or, or, or suggesting that it's not as good as people say it is. Um, I just don't understand. I'm not totally following how it's like so much better than uh, the previous episodes. Yeah, I you can't I can't grasp or wrap my mind around how people aren't already on board with episode you know earlier episodes. I mean, I guess I kind of maybe I'm, my suspicion might be that it's just kind of taking them a while to figure out the tone of the show. Um, you know, like you talked about in an earlier episode, like you know the early critics' reviews were pretty harsh, and 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 we you speculated that it was because they just they didn't really know what the show was. Um, and so maybe that's what we're seeing is that the critics are finally, you know, and I've only read this one AV club article, so I don't, maybe it's not indicative of like criticdom at large, but, uh, but maybe they're just kind of finally figuring it out. Yeah. You know, we've been saying that it's been the, that each, each new episode has been the best episode since the previous episode, since we started this thing too. So yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's just continually improving. Yeah. It was super good. It was, uh, yeah, and we're starting to see a little bit more with uh, with Isaac, um, which uh, he, he's still not. We haven't, we haven't quite developed him to the point where I'd like to see him yet, but uh, but I'm glad to see. I, like I think, um, kind of having a practical joke rivalry is kind of an ongoing thing between uh, um, between him and Malloy. I think that could only be good things for the show. Yeah, this episode had a definite A story and B story. Uh huh. Um. I don't really, I didn't really, you know, get that with the previous episodes. I, for one, one thing regarding Isaac, he didn't, he wasn't so data-ish in this one. He didn't sound so much like data to me this time. You know, I didn't pay attention, which I think is a positive thing because it's been distracting for me before how much he sounds like data. And this time, um, either I'm just getting used to his rhythm or maybe he has changed. And it a little bit. this last episode did start with the crew relaxing on the bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yet another 20th century pop culture reference. Yeah. Um, that, that's gotta be an ongoing gag, right? That's, that's uh, yeah, probably. Like but this version of the, the family guys, you know, continual references. Yeah. Uh, McFarlane has a, definitely has a love for pop culture. And so, and he uses it a lot in his other, um, you know, creative endeavors like Family Guy, American Dad, etc. So, I can see this, you know, element sticking around for uh, as much as, can you open this jar of pickles for me? Yeah, I think we've pretty much now confirmed that the jar of pickles is a thing. Right. Uh, and uh, you know maybe it maybe it will maybe maybe it will progress throughout the season and be more you know eventually just like Alara pickles. <laughs> Get the- Isn't that one of the Rugrats? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is now. So so in the Orville drinking game, we would have gotten pretty pretty smashed on this episode because we had twentieth uh, century, twenty first century pop culture reference. Yeah. And as far as video goes, we had um, open this jar of pickles, and we had um, Ed apologizing to Kelly. I think those. I think that's the trifecta of most episodes. Yeah, right <laughs> he, he apologized multiple times. We, yeah, we would have been hammered. <laughs> um, so let's cover the B story, the practical joke uh, element. 
the Mr. Potato Head applications on Isaac was was classic. Yeah, yeah, I lost it. <laughs> I, I I think I, I I think I personally thought it was funnier than it might have actually been, but <laughs> I lost it. I like how we learned a little more about Isaac. How those eyes aren't actually sensor. Mm-hmm. Um, receptacles there you know he's got internal receptors or whatever for that so uh, yeah they're doing a they're doing a really good job and kind of slowly building his character up to his feature episode right and it i think that's a good point how we're you know we didn't have to sit through and learn everything about him in one episode real quick but we're learning a little bit more how he functions because i mean he takes a beating in this episode as well mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. when i i watched this episode twice and the first time i watched it i as I was going, I was like, why, of all the Seinfeld scenes to show, why this one? It's, I don't, you know, I mean, it would have been, a scene Master of Your Domain would have been more appropriate for this show. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, then I understand it plays better for what the practical joke that Isaac does on Malloy, which is amputating his leg in the middle of the night. That was fucked up stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> the, the ship's own little psychopath. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to. Who, who doesn't really realize he's being a psychopath, but, or does he? That was, um, yeah, I, yeah, fucked up is the only way I could describe that element. I mean, it's funny, but it is dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I love how Malloy comes around on the end and it. He, he's like, yeah, that yeah. was a pretty good joke, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really didn't mean it, to call you that. But. And when he's still in sick bed, regenerating <laughs> his leg, and Captain Mercer tells him he needs to come up with a bridge, and he's like, "Serious? Seriously? <laughs> that dangling leg, man, was just, that was so funny." <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the uh, uh, the dangling leg uh, reminded me of uh, of Deadpool's baby hand. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It does. Um, I didn't catch that, but yeah, you're exactly right. Um. So. That that, even though the B story wasn't so much of the whole episode, it did it served as its good own little element to get us more in tune with the characters, as well as you know, helping the plot helping the plot of the A story move along more with having, uh, you know, the Junior Mint's reference at the end when Isaac saves the day. And it builds some some sympathy for Isaac as well. Like you know when he you know, when when he gets messed up, it's like I feel bad for the guy. Like I, I, it automatically kind of connects me to him, like in a way that we haven't been connected to him before. It's like I'm concerned for him suddenly, and I've never have been before. So yeah, it, if it, if it weren't for some future knowledge that we have that we can't get too much into, I would have been really worried for him in this episode. <laughs> Um, what'd you guys think of Charlize Theron? She's always awesome. You mean the character or her acting job? Let's talk about her. The, let's talk about using her in this show. So a little bit of both. No, definitely a big draw for star power. I hope, I hope it works out. I hope the numbers are good. Um, yeah, I think the fact that they, that she and Seth MacFarlane have a chemistry really helped in this episode. Yeah. As we uh, found out with uh, Jonathan Frakes, that 
she was already cast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or she was asked, yeah. Or asked, yeah. But I do like the way, I do like the fact that that was who Jonathan was thinking when he read the script, only to find out that that was already in the work. So, mm. Well, yeah, like we all know, writers tend to uh, write roles around certain actors. Right, so Do you guys- if you're listening, Seth, it doesn't need to be much of a role. Just one line. Yeah, I think we. I think we would all be. Uh, we'd all be at home in a in a Caliban Zoo too. <laughs> uh, so back to Charlize Theron. I um, did you guys like? In in some way, just by casting her, like I, I automatically distrusted the character because it was Charlize Theron, uh, in the role. It, it's like there was no way that she was just going to be this you know, as kind of sweet and innocent um, as she came across. Like, there was always going to be something darker to her just because it's her. I, I'm I'm the same way with Reese Witherspoon. Okay. I can't, I can't enjoy her in any movie because she was so good in some high school movie where she was running for school. Is that the one person. with Matthew Broderick? Yeah. Yeah, I don't remember the name either, but I know what you're talking about. Um, Election Day or something. And she was such a yeah. horrible person in that movie and Pleasantville. Right. That even when she plays a good person in a movie now, I don't like it. So I see what I see what you mean with uh Yeah, like Sh- Charlize. Yeah, I mean she's not always villainous, but she, there's always like this dark side to her. Um and uh and so that I just kind of kept expecting that and and you know as soon as Kelly starts to suspect um something's going on that I'm like on board too. It's like, yeah, there's something going on here. And uh and I got kind of ticked off at uh at Ed for not seeing it, um, and, and and also, and maybe this is all kind of working together. But like, I I didn't buy that he like his his the, the quickness of his trust in her. Um, I thought was it just it was too easy for me. Um, but again, that might be because of just Charlize Theron being in the role. I was I was expecting that the other shoe was going to drop it at some point, but. Um, but yeah, I thought I thought he was a little bit fast in uh, the way that he trusted her. Now I think her bringing up, you know, growing up in Massachusetts and all that sort of stuff, right? You know, threw him off. And now I was wondering, you know, was that true, or did she do her research on the character? Uh, research? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. It might have been research, um, or it could be true. I seems like uh, well, if it is true, then that. Um, that witch trial museum is still popular 400 years later. Uh, yeah, I, I know that. I know that museum from playing Fallout Four. I've never been to it myself, but it's a <laughs> part of Fallout Four, so I've been there and I get my ass kicked by a death claw. But that's another podcast that I, I don't do. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's it's now this is the we've had major stars, A listers, and B listers. In every episode so far, um, I th- I think it's fun. Um, it doesn't take me out. I like it could be dangerous because sometimes having you know a big name in a show can take take you out of the moment. Um, you know, like the Rob Lowe cameo was nothing. Mm-hmm. I didn't even recognize him at all. I thought the uh, Jeffrey Tambor, right, and um, Holland Taylor. I thought their cameo was awesome. 
as his parents, even mm. though they were, you know, programmed hologram. It still was awesome. And Liam Neeson was so muted. I didn't even realize I was watching Liam Neeson for the first 20 seconds or so. <laughs> um, and then which Charlie's Theron or Theron, as Michael says, I don't know which one's proper, but I'll go with Michael. Yeah, I don't know if that's right. <laughs> but... <laughs> um, just the chemistry that she had with Seth MacFarlane and the two and the chemistry that the two actors or the two characters shared worked really well for me. So, so far, the gamble of using recognizable our name actors has worked for the Orville. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think so, and I think it's just exactly because of the roles they're being put in. So with the exception of Charlie's Theron. <laughs> their own i i don't know how to pronounce it either um they they're they have not been in a sort of lead of the episode yeah and it's it you know there's sometimes where stunt casting is just stunt casting and it's it's very obvious and it's it's just a oh look at this cameo isn't that cute and clever and none of these have been that way um yet they've either been um so short that it just it was you know, almost over before it began, but, uh, or, or like this one where, you know, it's a role that really suits her. I mean, she's like perfect for the role. Um, and, uh, and it's not just like, you know, she's not playing herself and she's not, uh, just kind of showing up. So everybody go, Hey, look, it's Charlie's everybody. It's, uh, you know, it actually means something to the story. There were a couple elements in the show that I think have definite callback possibilities. Uh, the teleporter that Ed just yeah. nonchalantly dropped on his desk. Because we saw how that worked in the first episode by putting some redwood seeds in his pocket. <laughs> yeah. Also, speaking of the redwood seeds, I know we're calling back way, you know, several weeks now, but... We are not calling ourselves arborist. <laughs> no, no, but... Think about the redwood seeds and the diverticulitis. Will he end up having a tree extraction? That was my first thought when they talked about the redwood seeds. And as soon as the uh, the doctor put one in his mouth, I'm like, is this like watermelon seeds? Where uh... <laughs> <laughs> It takes 100 years for a redwood to grow and he'll be long gone. Yeah, but then he may have a sapling extraction anyway. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I I don't know I can see that teleporter being used later in the uh, later in the season maybe season finale or does the teleporter disappear with um, the destruction of the wormhole as well? Oh. That's a good point. That kind of got confusing yeah. there at the end because um, she says that we never would have met. Now is he going to completely for- is the crew going to completely forget what happened? I don't get the sense that he did forget. Because the camera lingers on it for a little bit, and there's, I feel like if he forgot, there would have been something on his face that would have kind of clued us in that, you know, some kind of confusion about like what's he doing there. I don't know. But, but something uh, way she kind of said her line, and maybe I just misheard it, but something along the lines of, "If you destroy it, we'll never meet, and you'll still be the guy hung up on his on your ex wife." Right now, or is that? If it wasn't for the wormhole, we never would have met, and you could have had the chance to come back with me and not be hung up on your ex-wife anymore. So it kind of got... Yeah, that's the way I read it. It kind of got a little foggy there at the end. Um, I was trying to pay attention the second time I watched it, too, to see if I was just being a clueless dunce. But yeah, I still didn't quite... I don't know. 
I'm just going to go with, I guess they'll remember everything okay, and and hopefully the space-time continuum isn't too messed up. Um, and I brought this up with uh, our guest, Jonathan Frakes. And again, I'm just saying, throwing his name out there again in case you aren't aware that we had Jonathan Frakes on the episode <laughs> this time. <laughs> in case for some reason you skipped the first I mean, this is, several minutes of this, this podcast, just humble bragging, you man. might want to rewind. Uh, but the way... <laughs> Seth MacFarlane interjects such specific bits of information. I want to know more about Lieutenant Phillips' hamster. We know it was a smelly hamster. In this, <laughs> the way things work in the show, yeah, the hamster could very much be something more than just a hamster, or it could just be a hamster. Maybe it's a turtle. Exactly. Or did Phillips? Is Phillips? Is he no longer a member of the crew? Well, why doesn't Phillips live in that apartment anymore? Is Phillips is Phillips the hamster? No, no, it was Lieutenant Phillips' hamster, I think. <laughs> yeah, did he die? But there, there's a whole. I don't know. We've got a we we we've we've got somebody in engineering that is a gelatinous. Right. I'm, so I'm being, thinking so. that the hamster could have maybe gone on to become a crew member. There's something in there <laughs> with this hamster, and I want to explore it more. Um. I want that's why I want the Orville to last mini season so we can learn why, you know. Yeah, I can see him like like strolling through the corridor like one of those Kia commercials. <laughs> no, I'm thinking he looks like a reg- I'm thinking he looks like a regular hamster in one of those little balls. In his little ball. That's yeah. Um Yeah, that's Okay, too. so we touched on the um Well before we go further, anything else anything else you guys have on this episode? Uh, well, we did learn that um, Captain Mercer does ne- never does it near the food. Good to know. <laughs> and it can do, what, 10 light years in an hour? <laughs> yeah, it's basically the fastest ship that we've ever seen on any kind of sci-fi. Uh, <laughs> um, so we're also start. This is this episode got a little bit more into the techno babble with the dark matter storm and the using the arrays and this and that, and the talking about the quantum drive. There was some um, really nice effects in there too. Like I really, I thought that would, that quantum storm was like beautiful to look at. It was really imaginatively designed. Yeah. Both the, the, the dark matter storm and then the, the wormhole itself yeah. too. I like how it was just kind of like a sphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I read somewhere and I, I don't know if either of you guys have read this as well, or I, not sure where it's confirmed, but I know I've seen it somewhere that uh, the screens on the bridge, the uh, cast is actually seeing what we see. Oh, really? It's not green screen. Yeah, yeah, they're not green screen. Yeah. That's cool. So they were actually watching Seinfeld on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like the design of the tractor beam too. Like I don't know if we've seen it that that clearly before, but like you know, in Star Trek, it is kind of there's this beam of light and it just kind of seems to know what within the ray to grab and pull. But this is like, it's very specifically like shoots out and envelops what it is that it's trying to pull in. And I just thought that was a nice design. And yeah, they had to coordinate or uh, calculate name and, mm-hmm. and I like when they, um, when the shuttle took off from the comet and her ship gets, you know, completely destroyed wish the way that looked like a cool old time practical model being swept away to me and so i just you know i'm very nostalgic about that sort of effect so that i don't know i doubt they did use it it was probably computer generated for that but i liked how, i liked how it looked um 
So this episode had time travel in it. And not much. It, you know, Charlie Stern's character came from the future, about 400 years in the future. Um, this was something, an element that other, you know, sci-fi shows use a lot. But let's, you know, of course, the show to compare it to would be Star Trek and its use of time travel. What do you guys think of pulling in this sort of plot tool this early in the show's life? It's a little bit scary to me. Like, time travel is always a scary proposition. Um, and it's very easy to just, as Doctor Who says, get kind of all timey-wimey about it and just say, well, we're not really going to explain it and, and it doesn't all have to make sense with each other. Um, I like for it to make sense with each other. Um, and I'm not sure that this totally does in this episode, like you were talking about, Dan. Like, we're not really... You know, when she goes back to where she came from, like, there are many ways you could write that, and they would all sort of kind of make sense. Um, and I don't know. It just, it, her whole business enterprise seems very shaky to me and, and really open to uh, to paradoxes and things going horribly, horribly wrong. No matter how time travels is done in any show, any movie, anything I've seen, and I don't think that you're going to satisfy really everybody with how the how it's explained or did destroying the wormhole completely not not for amelia Earhart actually coming back but that maybe she never well she disappeared but um not disappeared into the 29th century oh right she could have died yeah maybe she just died instead of uh, disappearing in the 29th century a lot of questions okay um but yeah, my very, very first introduction to Star Trek was the animated series. When it first ran, yes, I'm that old. The episode yesteryear where Spock goes back in time and helps him help save his young self on the planet Vulcan. Um, and I think I was five when I saw it, and that's when I fell in love with Star Trek. And I, I, I mean, throughout my whole time of being a Star Trek fan, I've often kind of complained about time travel episodes. But when you come down to it, the time travel episodes, a lot of them, maybe Voyager aside, you can pretty much say that with a lot of Voyager. Um, the time travel episodes are some of the best episodes, I think. They're very memorable. I mean, you think about um, was the city on the edge of forever. I mean, my favorite yes. of the Star Trek movies is Star Trek Four: Voyage Home. Oh, yeah, I love that. I love the going back into San Francisco and right in our modern day. And yeah, I'm, I agree entirely with that. And and the episode that Jonathan, or not the episode, the the Star Trek Generation Next Generation movie that Frakes directed, First Contact. Oh yeah, right. They Absolutely. go back in time as well. Yeah, my favorite of the. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like you said, like City on the Edge of Forever is classic television. Just beyond being a classic episode of Star Trek, it is a classic ep- classic, you know, episode of television in general. Um, mm-hmm. an- another fun episode was um the trouble or trials and tribulations that where they go back to the deep space nine where they go tr- you know, to yes. the trouble tribbles and then there was the one with mark twain on next generation times arrow yeah i didn't like that one so much but uh, and then of course there's the final next generation episode all good things it's a classic time travel episode mm-hmm. yeah yesterday's enterprise oh, oh, yeah, is another yeah, really yeah. good one um, next generation Yesterday's Enterprise is a very good one. Now, 
So with the fifth episode of the Orville, we've started to dabble a little bit. Time travel has been brought up. It wasn't a major, you know, our, our main characters, the crew of the Orville, didn't do time traveling. How long do you think it's going to be until they do time travel? I hope a long time, if ever. Like, because what I was going to say is, like, this this episode ends where they, they kind of close the book on it, right? They, there was this one specific way that people could travel through time and they destroyed it. Now, obviously, it's a science fiction show. They can come up with any number of ways to to do it again if they want to. Um, but I just, I hope they do it very, very sparingly. Yeah, that was the one, the one way that they had found and they had found that in the 29th century. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there was no, it wasn't like everybody was doing it. That was the one, the one thing. So hopefully, right. You know, I'm not. I'm going to say, oh, I hope they don't do a time travel episode anytime soon. But then again, we just ran off a whole bunch of fun, good Star Trek episodes that were essentially time travel episodes. So, yeah, if yeah. done right, it it could turn out really, really well. Yeah, exactly. Or you know, maybe they have episodes that are that are historical time places, but in their environmental simulator or on another planet that's been um, that's like earth in the 21st century or speaking of that, they did call it the environmental simulator, not holodeck. Yep. That's <laughs> so now we know it is the environmental simulator. <laughs> so the lawyers were going check on that one. We're clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, do we got anything else? I, I don't know how we are on time, but time travel um, seems like a good time. How many times can I say time in this segue? I think it's a good time to wrap up on the time travel part of the episode. All right. <laughs> um, let's take care of a little business. What do we got, Joe? Okay. Uh, well, um, the uh, the next episode of the Orville is going to be uh, titled Krill. And uh, that's that's David A. Goodman's episode. And it is uh, Ed and Gordon are sent on an undercover mission to infiltrate a Krill ship and obtain a copy of their Bible. So we will have David A. Goodman with us next week on the podcast to talk about it. He's executive producer of the show, as well as writing that particular episode. So we're looking forward to that. Michael and I have talked to David A. Goodman before on another podcast, and he is a delightful guest. Wouldn't you say, Michael? Yeah. yeah he was fantastic. He's great. Yeah, he wrote the book Autobiography of James T. Kirk. Uh, if you haven't checked that out, I know it's Star Trek, but go ahead and go get that. Check that out. And I guess at New York Comic Con this today, as a matter of fact, um, he had a panel talking about the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard, which he also wrote. So hopefully we'll ask him if he's going to write an autobiography of Ed Mercer. And um, there was a panel at New York Comic Con today. Um, we're not sure if what was revealed. I guess they saw an unaired episode, so probably they saw the Krill episode with David A. Goodman because he's there. He probably talked about it. So hopefully if uh, you were at New York Comic Con and you listen to this podcast, drop us a line. Let us know how it was. Uh, we want the inside scoop. You could be a field reporter. And uh, so we've also still got our contest going. Yes, we have a giveaway where we're giving away. Funny how they call them that a season pass for the Orville on iTunes. And all we are asking for your participation to have a chance to win is to listen to us on iTunes, subscribe. You don't even have to subscribe, but it'd be nice if you did. But we would like you to leave a ranking and review and let us know what your uh, 
name that you used to um, give that review, just so we can follow up on you. And uh, one lucky winner will win a season pass so they can watch Orville whenever they want on iTunes. Sweet. And as usual, follow us on Twitter at Planetary underscore Union or Facebook, Planetary Union Network. And Dan, I think we've got a group now for the uh, punsters, which I'm still calling Arborists. But Yeah, we've got a Facebook group now to coincide with our Facebook page. And this will just be more of a place to hang out. Uh, let's get this uh, community going um, where we can talk about the things that we talked about here on the episodes of the podcast and expand on our thoughts, your thoughts. We want to hear what you think. And, um, yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. Be one big happy family. And I think that wraps things up. I still do not have a clever sign up. So (laughs) make it so number one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, or I could just apologize. Like, Captain Mercer does. Sorry, sorry for whatever went wrong in this episode. I don't, you know, just point fingers. Um, I don't want to play the blame game. I don't need you to do any tell. You told me so, but this episode was my fault. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Night. There exists a zone in which the norm crosses over into the weird, and the everyday warps with the astonishing. Beyond the outskirts of the uncreative and the fringe of the uninspired exists the whereabouts of imagination and the territory of speculative realities. It is a nation that is neither ho-hum nor humdrum. You've just crossed the threshold into Nerd World. <laughs>